It was a frozen night in the winter of 1942, and everyone in the Polish city of Lwów was asleep. Almost everyone. 46-year-old Jewish scientist Ludwig Fleck unlocked the door to his friend Rudolf Weigel's laboratory and crept inside. Several large white refrigerators hummed quietly at the back of the lab. Fleck unlocked one and peered inside. Vials of black liquid filled the fridge. Fleck carefully wrapped several vials in paper and stuffed them into his pants. He sealed the lab and stepped outside into the bitter cold. His heart raced. If the Nazis caught him outside, they would shoot him. Suddenly, a truck swung onto the street. It was a German patrol. Fleck covered up the yellow star of David on his arm and ducked into a nearby alley. He made his way to the north of the city, where hundreds of thousands of Jewish people lived as captives. Fleck knocked on the door of a townhouse. After a moment, a rabbi with a white beard and threadbare clothes greeted him. Upstairs, Fleck carefully unwrapped the vials. They contained something more precious than gold, a typhus vaccine, enough to save a hundred people. He prayed to God that he would live long enough to deliver more. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our second episode on typhus, an extremely lethal, louse-borne disease caused by the bacteria Rickettsia provisecii. Typhus attacks the blood vessels, causing a rash, fever, and hallucinations. If left untreated, it can lead to death in less than a month. Last week, we traced the history of typhus from its first discovery in 1489 to the brutal epidemics that killed millions during and after World War I. This week, we'll follow scientists as they search for a cure using hordes of lice, gallons of urine, and willing human guinea pigs. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Typhus was one of nature's most terrible plagues. Rickettsia bacteria hijacked the victim cells to replicate themselves. Eventually, those cells burst, spilling more typhus bacteria into the blood. In some locations, it killed more than 70% of its victims. And the lice that carried it lived everywhere. It spread like wildfire in World War I, killing millions of soldiers and refugees. Parasitologist Dr. Rudolf Weigel had studied typhus in Poland since 1914. In 1918, as World War I was coming to an end, Weigel grappled with how to keep a supply of typhus on hand for his research. He needed large numbers of bacteria to do the experiments he wanted. But the only way to cultivate bacteria was to have healthy lice feed on infected humans. 
The epidemic that accompanied the war receded, and typhus patients became hard to find. Weigel tried keeping the bacteria alive by having infected lice feed on guinea pigs. But it was surprisingly difficult. The rodents didn't get very sick, and they rarely passed typhus bacteria back to healthy lice. One day, Weigel was arguing with one of his lab assistants, Philippe Eisenberg. Eisenberg asked how Weigel could keep the lab afloat without typhus patients for lice to feed on. In the heat of the moment, Weigel exclaimed that if he couldn't feed typhus to his lice, he'd put it up their anus. Eisenberg thought Weigel was being facetious, but Weigel led him to a nearby bench and showed Eisenberg what he meant. He used a glass pipette to carefully insert a small drop of water into another louse's rectum. Eisenberg was stunned at how simply Weigel had solved the problem. Using Weigel's method, they could keep rickettsia alive by passing it between lice. If they could scale up the process, perhaps they'd generate enough bacteria to produce a vaccine. Vaccines work by mimicking the body's natural defenses. When a person gets an infection, their white blood cells produce proteins called antibodies. These antibodies stick to matching proteins called antigens found on the outside of pathogens like bacteria and viruses. The antibodies neutralize the antigens. Antibodies are tiny. You could fit more than a thousand into a single white blood cell. Once they bind to a specific antigen, they act like a red flag that signals other white blood cells to destroy whatever they're attached to. The white blood cells remember how to make these antibodies months or even years later. People with this acquired immunity develop a milder case of a disease the second time they're infected. They may not even get sick at all. Vaccines are remarkable because they induce the body to create antibodies without the person ever catching the disease. In 1918, scientists prepared most vaccines using one of three methods. The first involved injecting a patient with a pathogen that was similar to the actual disease, but less deadly. The British doctor Edward Jenner popularized this approach with smallpox in 1796. Smallpox was a deadly contagion that caused painful red lesions to appear all over the body. Jenner heard that milkmaids who caught cowpox, a mild disease with similar symptoms, were protected from the more severe smallpox. To test this, he took pus from a milkmaid's cowpox blister. He then took his gardener's eight-year-old son, James Phipps, and rubbed the pus into a cut on the boy's arm. Two months later, Jenner did it again with scrapings from a smallpox blister. Because the virus that causes smallpox was similar enough to cowpox, Phipps already had antibodies that could fight the smallpox off. Phipps never developed smallpox, and soon Jenner's approach became common practice in Europe. The renowned French scientist Louis Pasteur developed the second type of vaccine in 1879. He studied chicken cholera, a disease that caused bloody diarrhea in birds. It appeared rapidly and killed entire flocks within hours. Pasteur discovered that in a lab, cholera bacteria that had spoiled became less lethal, although he didn't understand why. Whereas wild cholera killed 8 out of 10 birds, his cholera killed almost none. 
After injecting these weakened or attenuated microbes into healthy fowl, Pasteur introduced the deadly strain of cholera. Within days, they became sick but didn't die. The antibodies they had developed protected the chickens from wild cholera. Pasteur later applied this method to vaccines for humans. However, both of these vaccines carried substantial risks. Cowpox still killed 3% of those who contracted it. And even an attenuated microbe could occasionally revert to its more deadly form. Thus, a third kind of vaccine became the most popular. These so-called inactivated or dead vaccines were made by killing bacteria with heat or chemicals, such as phenol. The first inactivated vaccine was invented in 1880 by the veterinarian Jean Toussaint, a rival of Pasteur's. Toussaint wanted to create a vaccine for anthrax, a bacterial illness that attacks the lungs. He took a culture of anthrax and cooked it for 10 minutes, killing the bacteria. He then injected the solution into dogs and sheep. Even dead bacteria have antigens that white blood cells can recognize. Several weeks after vaccinating his animals, Toussaint injected them with live anthrax. Not one of them died. Bacteria didn't have to be alive to be useful. Weigel wanted to produce a dead vaccine for typhus. Now that he could directly infect lice, he had a reliable source of bacteria to make an inactivated vaccine. In 1919, Weigel hired 23-year-old Ludwig Fleck to help him. Fleck's most significant contribution to Weigel's lab was a new typhus test that was far more accurate than the one that already existed. Two Polish scientists, Arthur Felix and Edmund Weil, had developed the first typhus blood test in 1916. They found that a typhus patient's blood contained antibodies that reacted with a particular organism called Proteus OX-19. However, the test was notoriously unreliable. The test required a high concentration of antibodies, which didn't develop until the patient had been sick for four days. It also had many false positives. Fleck's test was different. He injected weak typhus antigens under the skin of his patients. If they didn't have typhus, nothing would happen. If they did have it, the injection site would have various reactions. Fleck hoped that his invention would help him land a professorship at a prestigious research institution. But because he was Jewish, not a single university wanted to hire him. In 1923, Weigel helped Fleck land a job at a hospital, and the two went their separate ways. Meanwhile, Weigel worked to refine his vaccine. He developed a complicated system for farming lice. His staff placed eggs inside a temperature-controlled cabinet. When the eggs hatched, they moved the larvae to matchbox-sized cages, then strapped them onto a volunteer's legs. The larvae had to feed on a healthy volunteer for 10 days. One volunteer described the experience as extremely painful. He said, when you put on the lice cages, the first thing you feel is like a hot iron, as 500 or 1,000 of them pierce your skin. Once lice reached maturity in the lab, Weigel had to infect them with typhus. Using a pipette, 
Weigel painstakingly injected a solution containing infected lice guts into each healthy louse's rectum. After Weigel infected them, the lice had to feed for another five days. These lice were highly infectious, and Weigel only let them feed on people who had already lived through typhus. This included Weigel, who survived it in 1917. Six days after they contracted typhus, the lice started to die. Weigel removed their intestines with a scalpel, crushed them up, and diluted the mixture with saline. Then he processed the typhus solution with phenol to kill the bacteria. This slurry of lice guts and chemicals was the vaccine. It was exhausting work for the volunteers as well as the scientists. Each louse contained about 50 million rickettsia bacteria. Weigel estimated he would need 5 billion bacteria, equivalent to 100 lice, to immunize a single person. Weigel's lab handled thousands of infected lice at a time, and working with them was extremely hazardous. More than one of Weigel's colleagues caught typhus and died. Weigel was so worried about the risks of typhus that he refused to test his vaccine on people. However, bacteriologist Dr. Helena Sparrow, who worked in Weigel's lab, was plenty eager to do it for him. In 1928, she and Dr. Charles Nicole, the man who proved lice carried typhus, tested Weigel's vaccine on four young children. Several months after the inoculation, Sparrow and Nicole deliberately exposed the children to typhus. Today, we would consider this type of experiment to be extremely unethical. Exposing anyone, let alone children, to potentially lethal bacteria is strictly forbidden. But at the time, many doctors thought it was a good idea. Typhus was rarely fatal in people younger than 10. By the end of the trial in 1929, none of the vaccinated kids became sick. News of Sparrow's success reached Weigel's lab, and one of the researchers tested the vaccine on his own wife. Weigel was furious, but since the woman never contracted typhus, he had to concede that the vaccine worked. Mankind finally had its first effective vaccine against typhus. If Weigel could find a way to make it in larger quantities, he could potentially stop the next outbreak in its tracks. The need was far greater than he could have imagined. In the 1930s, Poland was quickly becoming a dangerous place. A war was coming that would consume more than 50 million lives, and every government wanted to know how typhus would affect the outcome. Coming up, Dr. Weigel uses his vaccine to save Jewish lives as the world around him catches fire. Hi, it's Richard. Ready to hear about my new favorite Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. 
You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. In 1928, Rudolf Weigel created the first typhus vaccine. But he could only make it one dose at a time, and it would take millions to stop an epidemic. In the eyes of many government leaders, hygiene was a much simpler solution. In Germany, beliefs about public health insidiously fused with racial hygiene. As far back as the Middle Ages, various European authors described Jewish people as parasites. Nazi ideology took this belief and shrouded it in medical terminology. Julius Stryker, editor of a Nazi newspaper, wrote, The Jew is a bacillus and a plague. In September 1939, Germany invaded Poland and sparked World War II. German soldiers immediately crammed Jewish people into tiny ghettos lacking food, water, and proper hygiene. In their minds, ghettos were simply an efficient form of quarantining Jewish people. Ironically, their attempt to keep typhus away inadvertently put them at more risk than ever. As we've seen, crowded, filthy conditions allow typhus to thrive. It quickly spread outside the ghettos to German soldiers. In 1940, the Nazis attempted to stem a typhus outbreak in Warsaw, Poland. Jewish residents were stripped naked in the street and doused with chemicals meant to kill lice. Yet, the epidemic continued unabated. The Germans recorded 3,000 new cases every month, but the real number was probably higher. In 1941, a German officer named Hermann Eyer enlisted Rudolf Weigel's help to combat typhus. Hitler had personally ordered the execution of Poland scientists and thought leaders. However, because the threat from typhus was so great, Eyer believed Weigel was simply too valuable to lose. Weigel's vaccine was the only one the Germans had access to with a proven track record. Eyer allowed Weigel to continue his research on the condition that he surrender his vaccine to the German army. Working under Eyer's supervision, Weigel began scaling up production. He hired dozens of colleagues from Poland's intelligentsia who otherwise would have been shot by the Germans. The Weigel Institute became the only safe haven for these people in Lwów. Working tirelessly through the night, Weigel created an assembly line for producing vaccines. He designed new instruments to speed up the process, including a clamp that would hold 50 lice at a time. Weigel assigned his staff to specialized groups. Injectors would load lice into the clamp and pass it to a partner who pressed a pump that released a droplet of louse guts into each one. Together, they could infect 2,000 lice every hour. Another group was the dissectors, who pulled out the guts of dead lice using a needle and dropped them into a jar. Skilled dissectors could do this to 300 lice per hour. 
Weigel needed hundreds of volunteers to feed the tens of millions of lice that his lab processed. Men and women would show up each morning and strap dozens of cages to their legs. The volunteers never complained. As long as they were in that laboratory, they were safe. The future geneticist Václav Shabalsky was 19 years old when he oversaw a group of feeders. He wrote, Every day you said goodbye, you never knew if you'd see them again. Many of the feeders were members of the dwindling Polish resistance movement. Weigel helped them smuggle thousands of vials of vaccine to Jewish ghettos, where typhus was killing more than 30% of the population. Sometimes they smeared typhus-infected Laos feces on German trains as a form of sabotage. Weigel was able to shelter these people because his lab kept the German army supplied. However, his vaccines didn't always work. Sometimes people received all three recommended injections and still died of typhus because it wasn't potent enough. Furthermore, production depended on the health of his lice and their feeders. Food was scarce in Poland, and without proper nutrition, many volunteers became weak and had to stop feeding. Others suffered allergic reactions from the lice themselves. They developed blisters and fevers. These setbacks reduced the number of vaccines that Weigel was able to make. Even with more than 1,200 staff and volunteers, he still struggled to meet Ayer's demands. Weigel knew better than anyone how fragile his lab's ecosystem was. He started experimenting with alternatives to Laos farming. The scientists tried injecting Rickettsia provisecii into eggs and rabbits, but the rabbits didn't get sick, and the egg bacteria never grew. The lice were all he had. Weigel spent most of his time in the lab, but he didn't forget his friends. In 1942, it is speculated that Weigel intervened with the Germans to save Ludwig Fleck's life and got him a job at one of Ayer's laboratories in Lvov. However, it's unlikely that Fleck actually worked there. Still, Fleck was grateful for the vaccines Weigel helped him smuggle into the ghetto. But each delivery felt like a drop in the bucket. He thought that there had to be a better way to make it than by infecting tiny insects one at a time. In May of 1942, Dr. Fleck experimented with his skin test using urine obtained from typhus patients. Most doctors believed that they could only use blood to identify typhus. However, Fleck discovered that a concentrated injection of urine from typhus patients also gave a positive reaction in those with the disease. The urine didn't contain any living bacteria, so it wasn't contagious. But Fleck theorized that typhus antigens had found their way into the urine of typhus patients. If he injected people with enough of these antigens, maybe they could work as a vaccine. Fleck devised a system of concentrating urine by baking it into a thick liquid and filtering out large particles. He injected the concentrate into guinea pigs and infected them with typhus. To his elation, none of the guinea pigs contracted the disease. Fleck now had a vaccine, but his small hospital lab couldn't produce it in useful quantities. Fleck made a dangerous bet that the Germans' fear of typhus would compel them to help him. Fleck presented his findings to a group of Nazi officers and doctors 
in the same building where the Gestapo was located. Feigning confidence, he promised them a vaccine that would beat Weigel's in every way. Thankfully, his gamble paid off. The Nazis permitted him to make his vaccine at the Laocon chemical factory in Lavouf. Dr. Fleck spent the next several months refining his vaccine. On August 28, 1942, he tested it on himself. After being in the Gestapo headquarters, this was a cakewalk. He didn't wait to see if the vaccine worked. Once he learned it was safe, he administered it to his whole family. Then Fleck convinced his Nazi supervisors to let him test it on hundreds of prisoners at the Anovska concentration camp in Lvov. Tragically, he would never learn if it was effective for them. The Nazis executed all of his subjects soon after he inoculated them. Fleck and his team collected thousands of gallons of urine and used the factory to convert it into vaccines. He operated a small clinic in the ghetto where he secretly vaccinated thousands of Jewish people. A few months later, an informant tipped off the Nazis to his scheme. Fleck and his family were arrested and sent to the Buchenwald concentration camp. The Nazis at Buchenwald murdered almost 50,000 human beings. Surprisingly, Dr. Fleck wasn't one of them. His captors wanted to make use of their prisoners while they were there, and Fleck was extremely valuable. In a drab building known as Block 50, a sadistic SS doctor named Erwin Ding tried to develop his own typhus vaccine to rival Dr. Weigel's. He rescued Jewish scientists about to be executed and ordered them to experiment on their fellow inmates. But by 1943, they had made no progress. When Ludwig Fleck arrived at Block 50, he knew more about typhus than anyone else in Germany. He wasn't about to use that knowledge to help the Germans, but if he refused to help Ding, the Germans would kill him. Fleck came up with a plan. Over the next year, Fleck engineered a vaccine based on a French method. French scientists at the Pasteur Institute had recently developed a way to get Rickettsia provisecii to grow inside rabbit lungs. They claimed that a single rabbit could yield enough vaccines for 100 people. However, rabbits are normally immune to typhus. So the French scientists created a convoluted way to help Rickettsia adapt to living inside similar animals. They passed the bacteria from humans to guinea pigs, then mice, and finally rabbits. The technique was so difficult that no one at Buchenwald had been able to replicate it. But Fleck pulled it off. How he did it is unknown, as Fleck falsified his notes to prevent his secrets from falling into German hands. Fleck and his colleagues injected their new rabbit-derived vaccine into prisoners and then exposed them to typhus. When only one of the prisoners died, Erwin Ding was ecstatic. German laboratories verified that the vaccine worked and ordered huge quantities for the Eastern Front. However, most of it never reached Russia. Instead, the prisoners shipped a fake vaccine in its place. Because the process for making vaccines was so complicated, Fleck assumed no one would know if he had deliberately flubbed a step. 
Historians estimate that the Germans vaccinated 200,000 soldiers with the faulty serum. Fleck kept the real vaccine to inoculate inmates. The Nazis never knew the difference. Thanks to Fleck's sabotage, thousands of German soldiers succumbed to typhus. However, Buchenwald wasn't the only Nazi laboratory searching for an improved vaccine. Other labs in Germany experimented with creating vaccines from lice, rabbits, and mice. But the only reliable vaccine they had came from Dr. Weigel, and no one could replicate it. Even before the war, Weigel was happy to share the vaccine with anyone who asked, but he refused to publish his methodology. Because of this, Weigel was the only person with the expertise to build a working typhus farm. When World War II broke out, the Allies were cut off from Weigel's lab and had to invent their own vaccine. And they needed it quickly. In early 1942, General Dwight Eisenhower was planning an invasion of North Africa. Many expected typhus to wreak havoc on the Allied troops, as it had on so many armies in the past. If they couldn't make a vaccine before the landing, thousands of soldiers would die. Coming up, an American bacteriologist makes a discovery. And now, back to the story. In 1942, America and Great Britain were bracing themselves for an outbreak of typhus the minute Allied troops landed in North Africa. There was no cure and no way to stop its spread. Dr. Rudolf Weigel had manufactured the only proven vaccine, and he was working for the Germans. Fortunately, the Allies had a secret weapon, Dr. Harold Cox. In 1936, Cox began to research Rickettsia rickettsii, the bacteria that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Rickettsia rickettsii is a close relative of Rickettsia provisecii. Rocky Mountain spotted fever is transmitted through tick bites and is endemic in parts of North America. Although it isn't as contagious as typhus, it's even more deadly. Less than two weeks after being bitten, an infected person develops a headache and fever. They become nauseous, achy, and sensitive to light. Two to four days after that, red spots called petechiae appear on their arms and legs. That's when the real problems start. The fever continues to increase, giving rise to confusion and hallucinations. In its end stages, Rocky Mountain spotted fever triggers septic shock. Septic shock is a condition where the body's response to infection overwhelms multiple organs at once. The patient's temperature spikes and their blood pressure drops. Finally, all major organs give out one by one. In 1936, nine out of every ten people who contracted Rocky Mountain spotted fever died this way. Dr. Cox wanted to make a vaccine for the disease. He knew how hard it was to keep Rickettsia bacteria alive in the laboratory, but he had read about a recently discovered tactic that might solve the problem. He would grow them in chicken eggs. Chicken eggs are like sterile pouches. The eggshell protects a developing chick from outside germs, but the egg itself lacks a mature immune system to fight off infections. If Cox could infect an egg yolk with Rickettsia, 
the bacteria could replicate without competing against other germs. Cox took blood from infected guinea pigs and carefully injected it into eggs. Then he transferred the yolk from these contaminated eggs into healthy ones. Each time he did this, the concentration of Rickettsia rickettsii inside the eggs increased. Once Dr. Cox had enough bacteria, he separated them from the yolks by centrifugation. Then he killed the deadly bacteria by submerging them in phenol. In 1938, after only two years of research, he had an inactive vaccine for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. His timing couldn't have been better. That year, Cox accidentally contracted the disease and his own vaccine saved his life. In 1940, with the threat of war looming, Dr. Cox used the technique he'd developed to create a vaccine for typhus. By early 1942, Cox shipped the first doses to the U.S. Army. Dr. Cox continued to improve his methods, and soon he was able to output 90,000 doses a day. When the Allies invaded North Africa, millions of GIs had already received the vaccine. However, the egg vaccine came with its own set of problems. For starters, it was relatively weak. One researcher caught typhus after receiving three injections of Cox's vaccine. On top of that, the U.S. Army could never produce enough vaccines to inoculate the civilians in every country they visited. As long as there were lice to spread it, typhus would survive. After the massive outbreaks of the First World War, many governments took great interest in developing better ways of eliminating lice. Their efforts overlapped with the problem of agricultural pests, which frequently destroyed harvests and led to famines. At the time, there were very few proven ways to kill insects, and the most effective insecticides harmed people as well. In 1934, American farmers dumped more than 80 million pounds of arsenic on their crops. Arsenic is a chemical that is extremely harmful to humans. According to the CDC, arsenic poisoning causes nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. If left untreated, these symptoms lead to multiple organ failures and eventually death. Doctors knew about arsenic's toxicity, and so they looked for alternatives they could use for delousing. Some of these, such as the petroleum extracts benzene and kerosene, were not much safer than arsenic. Enter Dr. Paul Herman Muller. After getting his PhD in 1925, Muller began his career creating synthetic dyes for the J.R. Geige Company. But by 1935, Muller had changed his focus to insecticides. Muller thought it was possible that an effective chemical insecticide already existed. He dug through thousands of dyes and chemicals from J.R. Geige's inventory he thought might be useful. He then tested each one on common moths. It took four years and more than 300 attempts before Muller found a likely candidate, a moth-proofing powder produced by the Geige company. In September 1939, he doused a cage of flies with his latest compound, and all the flies died instantaneously. Further trials showed it worked on mosquitoes, flies, and lice. The short name for Muller's compound was DDT. 
DDT works by causing certain nerves to fire uncontrollably. This overloads the insect's brain, triggering spasms and death within seconds. In 1943, DDT caught the attention of the United States Typhus Commission. They immediately asked for a sample. The commission tested DDT by dusting it first on prisoners and then on villagers in Egypt, Mexico, and North Africa. In every case, it dramatically reduced the number of typhus infections. The invention of power dusters, which could blow DDT onto many people at once, only increased its effectiveness. The combination of DDT and Cox's egg vaccine ensured that not a single American GI died of typhus in the entire war. In December 1943, American troops responded to a typhus outbreak in Naples. The Typhus Commission dusted 1.3 million people with DDT and shipped millions of doses of vaccines. For the first time in history, humanity stopped a typhus epidemic in its tracks. The Germans had their own insecticide programs as well. Their method of choice would become one of history's most notorious chemicals. However, it was discovered in America. On a crisp fall afternoon in 1886, entomologist D.W. pulled a tarp over an orange tree. He was testing yet another chemical in a long list to see if it killed the tiny scale bugs that were destroying citrus groves in Los Angeles. Coquillette had tried everything he could think of. Smoke, steam, alcohol, arsenic. None of it worked against scale, so his experiments continued. On this day, Coquillette mixed water, sulfuric acid, and potassium cyanide in a metal drum. Then he stepped out of the tent and waited. Inside, hydrogen cyanide gas rose from the drum and coated the tree. According to Dr. Jeremy Graham, cyanide is a poison that blocks the ability of mitochondria to use oxygen. Essentially, it causes every cell in the body to suffocate. When Coquillette lifted the tent, thousands of bugs lay dead on the ground. Within years, farmers used cyanide gas to fumigate orchards all across America. The potential of cyanide for delousing was clear even in World War I. However, the gas tended to evaporate quickly. In 1920, three German chemists found a way to stabilize the gas by putting it inside pellets. It was sold by the company IG Farben under the name Zyklon B. The Nazis, obsessed with eliminating typhus, bought large quantities of the stuff and used it in barracks, ships, and other places vital to the war effort. One record states that between 1939 and 1944, the Germans fumigated the clothes of 25 million people. Adolf Eichmann, the bureaucrat who oversaw the building of concentration camps, felt that he could exterminate Jewish people in the same way as lice. He herded more than a million human beings inside fake showers, then filled the rooms with Zyklon B. The prisoners' bodies burned day and night in the crematoriums at Auschwitz and other death camps. After World War II, the globe abandoned hydrogen cyanide in favor of the much safer DDT. Unfortunately, DDT was dangerous as well. 
While very effective at killing lice, acute exposure also caused neurological damage in humans by impairing their neurons' ability to fire. According to toxicologist George Lucier, long-term exposure can lead to pancreatic cancer and lymphoma. However, the harms of DDT were mostly unknown until 1962. That year, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, described how DDT could poison entire ecosystems. Airplanes sprayed DDT across vast swaths of land, and the compound killed most insects on contact. Rainwater then washed the DDT into streams where it killed fish. Birds that fed on these fish laid paper-thin eggs that soon died. Forests where songbirds once sang became eerily quiet. Outrage over Carson's book compelled politicians to ban DDT in 1972 and forced scientists to look for safer alternatives. The post-World War II era was a boon for the development of thousands of new chemicals used in everything from agriculture to healthcare. This period also produced another typhus breakthrough. The extraction of penicillin from mold in 1928 had shown the world that antibacterials could be found anywhere in nature. In 1948, in a laboratory in Pearl River, New Jersey, a group of scientists led by microbiologist René Dubose hoped to make a similar discovery. Dubose had been analyzing soil specimens from all over the world. He hoped that one of them would contain the next penicillin. In 1948, he placed sample A377 dirt from a Missouri hayfield into various petri dishes containing bacteria. Within days, each plate had fungus growing on it. A ring of dead bacteria surrounded the mold. Dubose and his team tested the sample against Rickettsia rickettsii, the microbe responsible for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. To their amazement, it killed every last bacteria. The drug they isolated from sample A377 was the first of a new class of antibiotics called tetracyclines. According to Dr. Mark Nelson, tetracyclines work by blocking bacteria's ability to make the proteins they need for survival. When Debose tested A377 against typhus bacteria, the antibiotic wiped it out. Thanks to the work of René Debose, Paul Muller, and Harold Cox, epidemics of typhus became less and less frequent. Wherever it appeared, health authorities swooped in with vaccines, antibiotics, and insecticides to cure every last patient. In 1997, doctors from the World Health Organization flew to Burundi, where 24,000 refugees contracted typhus. They set up hospitals to test, delouse, and treat anyone who was ill. By the end of the year, the outbreak was over. It was the last typhus outbreak in history. Today, most doctors have never even seen the disease with their own eyes. And when they do, it is easily treated with tetracyclines. Since cases are so rare, manufacturers no longer produce Cox's vaccine. Howard Ricketts, Stanislas Provozik, Edmund Weil. These are just a few of the researchers who died in the fight against typhus. Their legacy lives on today in the millions of people who they saved from the disease. 
However, Typhus wasn't defeated entirely. It had one more trick up its sleeve. In 1975, scientists connected flying squirrels with sporadic typhus cases in the United States. The squirrels are a reservoir for the disease, proving that perhaps mankind may never be completely rid of it. And although epidemic typhus is no longer a public health threat, it's not the only form of typhus out there. In the last hundred years, many close relatives have been identified, such as scrub typhus, murine typhus, and Mediterranean spotted fever. All of them bear the same hallmarks of Rickettsia provisecii, yet are genetically distinct. A vaccine against one may not protect against the others. They come in a wide variety, each with its own carrier, such as fleas, ticks, and other parasitic insects. We may have defeated typhus, but its cousins will be around well into the future. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information about Drs. Weigel and Fleck, we found Arthur Allen's book, The Fantastic Laboratory of Dr. Weigel, How Two Brave Scientists Battled Typhus and Sabotaged the Nazis, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm back to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast. Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I think you're really going to get a kick out of it. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.